done fell right down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right Hey, Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Paul Tender Dog Ninja Sometimes they're cat Freddy, but never the ferrets. Tracy, what I tell you about playing the organ while I'm trying to record a commercial? Dang, my bad. Get off my nuts. Hey, Hibbly Horror Stories fans, I'm Annie Weaves. And I'm Brendan Shea. We are paranormal investigators and hosts of Serial Spirits Podcast. We're excited to be a part of the Hillbilly Horror Story 6th Anniversary Live Show at the Old Hospital on College Hill. We have had the privilege to investigate there, and wow, is this place active. Hey guys, it's Jerry. And Tracy. We are so excited to have Annie and Brendan with us on Saturday, August 20th at the Old Hospital on College Hill in Williamson, West Virginia. You will hear both shows do a live version of our podcast, and then everyone will get a tour of the hospital. Get your tickets today at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And don't procrastinate, because seating is limited. Hey guys, welcome to episode 312 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, as always, we want to start off by thanking all of our military and civil servants all over the world that are part of our allied troops, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you men, women, and service animals for everything that you do. Amen. We can't thank you guys enough. I know we say it every week because we want you to know that we are so proud to have you representing our country, having our backs, and we pray for you guys every single day. Tracy, we always talk about mental health and I think it's important to realize that nobody is above needing someone to talk to. Absolutely not. And I talked to two different people this past week Mm -hmm. that when I initially started talking to them, they were in a really bad place. And by the end of the phone calls, they both agreed to seek extra help. We're not geniuses. We can't do it all. Oh my God, we'll do no. what we can, but some things need professional help. Mm-hmm. And in both of these cases, they agreed to seek professional help. And I've received word in both cases that they actually were admitted into hospitals. And both people were thankful that they had that conversation. Good. Well, thank you, honey, for doing that. Um, like we say over and over, all it takes sometimes is just for somebody to listen offer any advice they have, you know, you just never know what people are going through. They may look happy as hell on the outside and just miserable on the inside. So please just reach out, you know, just call up somebody and say, hey, just thinking about you, how are you doing and all this stuff like that. And that will make a ton of difference. A really good friend of ours. You guys would know who he is. I'm not going to name him, but you guys would know who he is. Good friend of the show. Good, great friend of ours. 
he lost someone to suicide, 20-year-old kid, basically. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was upset at himself for missing the signs. We can't always spot everything. And, you cannot, and like, no. like he said, he's like, he was always smiling. He was always mm-hmm. joking. And that's the face that a lot of people put on. That's why you just need to just check with people. Just ask occasionally. It doesn't matter who it is. Just ask, are you doing okay? All right. Even if you think they are, don't assume anything. Never assume. Uh-uh. No. But, but also don't blame yourself if you missed it. We all want to put ourselves through the ringer for, for missing the signs. Mm-hmm. But trust me. You know, I, I, as I said to him, you know, Chris Cornell just got off the phone with his wife. Mm-hmm. She didn't see anything wrong, you know, and that's his wife. Yeah. So how can a co-worker necessarily see all the signs? Sometimes they're out there a little more obvious, but sometimes they're not. You know, we lost someone dear to us about seven or eight years ago that, you know, lived with his grandmother and. Everything was perfect the night before, but something happened. Yeah, and you know, they 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 were clueless. His grandparents were absolutely clueless. I mean, this guy was basically you know, not much older. He was you know late teens, early twenties. He had set his alarm for school the next day. He was going to a. Um, you know, uh, not a class, but it was... To get registered. Yeah, or orientation. Yeah. He was going to orientation. He had just bought a new gaming system that day, and new game, I was sitting up playing the game, set his alarm, and something happened between then and the next morning. And sometimes you just can't see an issue. Mm-hmm. And you can ask yourself a thousand questions. Why would he set the alarm for the next morning if this is what he planned on? He probably didn't. The facts say that most people who commit suicide make up their mind to do it within 90 minutes of the actual act. So I know I know I was a little longer than we usually get into, but it's been a very emotional week for uh, people who've had that situation. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to two or three people this week that lost people due to suicide. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I just wanted to bring that up that in every case of the people I've talked to, they really felt like that they let the, that person down and you can't feel that way. You can't. You just can't. Just, um, like I said, just reach out and say, hey, what's up? And then that, I mean, just do the best you can. Hopefully, maybe they'll open up to you. Or anything you might have said may have just brightened their day and changed their mind thought. All right. So, so if anybody needs to call the hotline number, the suicide hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. You can also text at 741-741, but please reach out. Kind of a tough transition, obviously, where we're going to get into this week's episode. And I want to say that at the end of the episode, we have a very cool interview with Dan Class, who is the owner of the Hensdale House. Oh, yeah. Up in New York, up in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And um, I found out a little tidbit that I didn't know. A lot of people who know me know that I've been talking a lot about Everclear. Yes. And we have the interview that I got a chance to do with Everclear's founder and lead singer, Art Alexakis. That will come out Monday. I've actually, I'm going to release the video for that as well, but the audio will be out uh, on Monday. But... A lot of people know me know that I love Everclear, but they also know one of my all-time favorite bands is Live, and their lead singer, Ed Kowalczyk, I had just mentioned to Art the other day, was one of my musical 
idols. I have three. Mm-hmm. John Lennon, Art, and Ed Kowalczyk. Mm-hmm. And we had an, an opportunity to meet Ed about nine years ago yeah. before we mm-hmm. moved to the Virgin Islands. And as I told uh, Dan Class today, I actually keep, and I'm not a memento guy. I don't have a lot of autographs and that kind of, it's just not something I typically do. But I have the autograph ticket that I keep in my wallet signed by Ed. Ed, yeah. And that's the only kind of thing I keep like that mm-hmm. in my wallet of any very kind of nice sentimental man. value. Yeah, very and, nice. And uh, I found out that Dan used to be Live's tour manager. <laughs> At one point was How their tour funny. manager. And I had no clue. So it was like now nah, Small I had this, world. So I had a chance to talk to him and talk a little bit about Live. And, and that comes right on the heels of getting to talk about art. So really cool week. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that interview comes on afterwards. Uh, you guys are probably going to love that one because I sure had fun with it. All right. So, Tracy, we haven't actually done this in a few years, but we're actually doing a haunted location that's located in the city that we're also hosting our live event, which is Indianapolis. Perfect. This comes out Sunday. We have to record it a little bit early because we're going to be in Indianapolis all day Saturday, and I don't know when we're coming back on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So we're recording this early. Now, actually, I believe the last time that we actually did this, it was also in Indianapolis when we did the Hannah House. (laughs) No kidding. I used to want to try to do, like, the very first live show we ever did where we had paying customers, because we did that that free one out at Talbot Tavern. Yeah, yeah. That was technically the first live event. But the first one we ever did was in Ohio, so we did the Ohio State Reformatory. Yes, we did. And so I thought it would be cool every time we were at a place to try to dig up a place that was there. And then eventually we just got out of it, because I wanted to find the best story possible, not necessarily the best story from that location. Okay. So, And plus, if you go to Indianapolis three times, four times, you can only you start running out of places that have a lot of history to mm-hmm. them. So I know one time we did the Indi- uh, Indiana Indianapolis Poltergeist. Yep. And then we've done the Hannah House. And then this time we'll do this one. So. All right. Sounds great, babe. All right. Tonight we are going to cover the Central State Hospital. Now, originally when the hospital opened way back in 1848, it was the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane. Okay. And actually, I'm lying about that. I'll tell you about it in a minute, but it actually didn't get changed to the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane until uh, later in its time. But um, they did eventually change that name. It's probably a good decision. Yeah. It's amazing all these hospitals that were called the Insane Asylum. Yeah. Hospitals for the Mentally Insane. I don't like that. So the hospital was established to help treat patients from anywhere in the state originally. But by 1905, There were several psychiatric hospitals throughout the state, so Central Hospital only cared for patients in the central part of the state. In 1950, there were 2,500 patients in this hospital. Yeah, that's a lot. It closed in 1994 due to allegations of abuse and funding shortfalls. Oh, no. How many times have we seen these homes and hospitals get shut down because of Abuse. I'll never understand that. Never. Well, I understand it because in more cases than not, especially when it comes to nursing homes, they don't pay any money. So they get the, the quality of people that work there just are different. You know what I mean? They don't. A lot of nursing homes pay basically 10 bucks an hour. 
for aides and stuff to come in. And, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of special training. You, you got to take your CNA course and stuff. But, but a lot of times there are people that are on the bottom of the pay level. And when you're at the bottom of the pay level, you open the door for more people who just don't care about being at work. Okay, but that's still no excuse. I worked in the nursing home. No, I, I would never in a million years think of doing something I under, like that. I understand that. And I'm not saying that applies to everybody because there's a lot of great people who right. do that job. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying there's a lot of people out there that do that. Look at, look at how many people are employed in every nursing home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they run short staff. Oh, they always run short staff. And people, you know, and and it's not an easy job by any means. It is not. So when you start combining short staffed, not an easy job, and low pay, frustrations get high. And sometimes people become immune to what's around them. No, it doesn't make it right. But I... But I can yeah. see why it happens. I'm not saying I understand why it happens. I can see why it happens. Yeah. So it's just it's not a good recipe for success. No, not at all. All right. So that's the basics uh, of the place. So you kind of have a rundown. Let's get into specifics. The Indiana legislature authorized for a hospital for the insane to be built in 1827. Okay. The actual construction was delayed for several years, and it finally opened in November 1948. 21 years later. Oh, my gosh. Is it just because of finances, you reckon? A little bit of everything. They had a total of five patients when they opened, and this was the original name. They were under the name of the Indiana Hospital for the Insane. Okay. So they they changed it to the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane eventually. Uh, But at that time, the hospital was one brick building sitting on 100 acres of land. This piece of land was on Washington Street just west of downtown Indianapolis. In 1889, the hospital was renamed the Central Indiana Hospital for the Insane. So it kept that name for, wow, what are you looking at, 40 years? Mm-hmm. 41 years. Yeah, long time. And the only reason they changed it was because, well, we told you that they started getting other uh, hospitals started opening up. So they started working on the central part instead of all over Indiana. Okay. That's why they changed mm-hmm. it to the central Indiana. But they still left the insane part of it. Oh, I was going to say, a big deal. They still have the worst word on there. In 1926, that was changed to just the plain old Central State Hospital. So it took them another 40 years, basically. How to ridiculous that. is that? That's so stupid. In 1928, there were 3,000 patients. So from 1848 to 1948, the hospital grew into two massive, beautiful, ornate buildings. One for men and one for women. But those weren't the only buildings. There was also a pathological department, a quote-unquote sick hospital for the treatment of the physical ailments. So if one of them actually had a medical problem, Mm -hmm. that's where they would go. There was a farm colony, so they raised all their own food and and, uh, their own dairy and stuff like that. Very cool, very cool. This was a place where patients engaged in what was considered to be occupational therapy. It was good for them to be working on the farm. Yeah, of course. There was also a chapel, an amusement hall that had billiards, a bowling alley, a bakery, a cannery, a firehouse, gardens, fountains, and an auditorium. Nice. They were trying to do it upright. Good. They should. All of this was manned by patients. So they took care of everything. Okay. Well, that's good. Of the two main buildings, the most ornate one was known as the Seven Steeples. This is where the women stayed. It's a beautiful place. It was beautiful. It was designed 
by the Kirkbride plan. Now, we've talked about the Kirkbride plan before on here, but I'll give a brief description for somebody who maybe hasn't heard some of the previous episodes. The Kirkbride plan was a mental asylum design by American psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride in the mid-19th century. These designs that he did were thought to be essential in healing the mentally ill, such as having a lot more natural light, so there was a lot of windows in these places, and they had better air circulation. Most of them had a bat wing style floor design. What's that? So, well, think about having a middle building and then another section of it up to the left and up to the right and then another one a little higher. So when you picture how a bat looks, you basically then would stair step out to each side. So if you looked at it from above, it kind of would look like a bat. Oh, okay. Got you. So that's what they did. Now, I won't bore you with a bunch of details on the rest of the history of the place, but I do want to touch on a few important um, facets here. In 1905, new institutions opened in Evansville, Logansport, Madison, and Richmond, Indiana. This did relieve some of the overcrowding at Central State Hospital. Now the hospital would only treat patients from 38 counties that were in the central part of the state. But as we stated earlier, by 1950, the hospital was back to housing 2,500 patients. By the 1970s, most of the hospital's old Victorian-era buildings were declared unsafe and torn down. Hmm. The men's building had been actually demolished all the way back in 1941 and rebuilt. The state replaced the buildings with just basic plain brick buildings. Nothing fancy to Mm -hmm. them. But they did replace them. The staff continued to serve patients all the way up until 1994. That's when the hospital was closed amidst allegations of patient abuse and lack of funding. The grounds of the hospital today look much different than they did back then. The women's ward, Seven Steeples, has since been torn down. Now, where that said, it's just a big, large lawn. Oh, gosh. Thank nothing out there, huh? Uh, There are 10 buildings that are still on the property that were associated with the hospital. The pathology department that was built in 1895 is well-preserved, and it houses the Indiana Medical History Museum. Okay, that's good. So you can actually go out there if you want to. Oh, cool. The oldest building on the property is the old powerhouse building. It was built a few years earlier in 1886. Okay, so I guess it's time to talk about the fun stuff. Okay. Or if you're a history buff, that was the fun stuff. No, that's very interesting. (laughs) Tracy, like so many times we discuss mental institutions, there are allegations or in most cases proof of patient abuse. This is obviously the case here as well. One of the things to keep in mind that tie into this There were over five miles of tunnels that linked all these buildings together on this large property. This is so the nurses could go to building to buildings and be out of the weather. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were some dark rooms off of the tunnels that were equipped with chains and shackles on the walls. What? Why? Do you really need to ask why? Well, not really. It's just hard to imagine that, I don't know. That shackles were on the walls and all that stuff, I guess. But we'll get into that a little more later because mm-hmm. we're going to discuss that. And, and I mean, you got to remember, this was at a time yeah, to where they didn't know how to handle, handle people. Yeah. And some of these people, I mean, you have a group of 2,500 people and some of these people 
were violent. Right. And they didn't have the medicines and stuff today. That they do now, yeah. That had to be so hard on those people. Patients who died while living at the hospital were buried in unmarked graves in two different locations over 100 years ago. Why would they do that, though? Why would they bury them in unmarked graves? I mean, why couldn't they? I I mean, they didn't have to, but I'm sure they did. Hmm. Those graves were just recently discovered. No kidding. Yeah. There's more about that coming. It was reported that a significant cemetery site was found in the northwest corner of the hospital's property. This is where Vermont Street connects with Tibbs Avenue. Patients' remains were also buried along the western edge along Tibbs Avenue near the old pathology building as well. I also wanted to point out that by the time the hospital closed, it had grown to 146 acres from the 100 acres that it started out with. So the question is, do you think that a hospital full of abuse, death, and unmarked graves over a 140-year history might cause a few restless spirits to still linger? Oh, I'm sure. Definitely. In the early years of the hospital, mental health treatment was still very new. Many of the drugs used today weren't available. Therefore, they used heavy restraints because several patients were prone to violence. So the most violent patients were held in the basement or in those dark rooms. The patients were in dark, inhumane conditions with restraining practices that would be deemed to be barbaric these days. I mean, I... I Get it. What else were they supposed to do? It's just sad that it had to come to that, though. Did so, you feel bad for those patients? So, yes, there are very good reasons for wrestle spirits there today. Yeah. We mentioned that the old powerhouse was the oldest building. The maintenance workers there have gone down to the basement. They have to go down to the basement twice a day to shovel out the ashes. I think it's. I think they still use coal there. Oh. From a, I'm not exactly sure, but I think that's what the deal is. Most of these maintenance workers have heard a woman scream coming from the corner of the basement. They say there's also been shadows of entities seen moving from one cement post to the other cement post. There's a story that's often told about one employee that was in the old powerhouse. He was kind of tired, so he decided he was going to take a nap in one of the rooms that was just, just off the basement. This room was near the pumping station. He suddenly woke up when he was being choked by what he described as unseen hands by some type of presence. Oh, my gosh. He was finally able to break the grasp of whatever it was that was choking him. And he ran for the light switch, flipped the light on, and, of course, nobody was there. But when he looked in the mirror, there were deep red marks around his neck where he had been choked. No way. How does that happen, though? How does a like a ghost or something like leave marks on your neck? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, if they can knock something over or move something, then they could push in enough. All, all you got to do is push in, and it would cause the marks. You wouldn't have to have. I, mean, an I guess hand. it just don't seem like that's reality. Some people tell you it's not reality. <laughs> oh well, that's true. <laughs> anyway, there's also been reports of the coal conveyor belt, which brought coal to the boiler room. It will turn on and off on its own accord. So That is so creepy. I would not want to be there for that. Mm-mm. All right, Tracy, let's move on to the second oldest building, the pathology building. In this building, 
Let me tell you the kind of work they did. This is where the bodies of the deceased patients would be closely examined so they could try to find the causes of their mental illness. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I don't know what that's going to entail, but it didn't sound good. We're, we're really not even getting any more of that. I'm just telling you that's what went on there. Oh. So. Why you got to leave me hanging? <laughs> Several visitors have reported hearing voices coming from the basement when there is no one in the basement at all. So Revenge? I don't know. So there's really not much going on in that building. That's that's really the only thing happening in the pathology building. So. I guess we're lucky then. One of the newer buildings is the administration building. Footsteps are often heard in that building when there's no source for the footprints. Footprints. Footsteps to be found. <laughs> footprints would be helpful. <laughs> yes. Most of the time the footsteps are heard coming across the lobby to the window in front of the main desk and then they go back again. From where they came. From where they came. Now, as far as the dormitories, maintenance workers have heard cries and screams coming from all of the dorms. This would have been similar to the cries and the screams that would have come from the dorms back when it was a functioning hospital. Mm. You got to remember, once again, the newer years would have been different, but in the older years, this place would have been filled with people screaming and yelling and... You know, I remember when Geraldo did his documentary on the on the place up in New York. That was in the 70s. And just going through there, everybody was screaming and hollering and moaning and groaning. And that was in the 70s. So you could imagine what that would have been like in the early 1900s. Yeah, you just feel so sorry for those souls. Mental health has come a long ways yeah. in the last hundred years. They don't do all the shock treatments and stuff thank that God. they used to do yes, back in the day. thank you. Terrible. So, we have to keep in mind that mental health is painful and very scary to those who have it and that are living with it. Right, And that's right. something to always keep in mind. Yes. Even when you're talking about your friends and relatives mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. On the second floor of the woman's dorm, which is the newer dorm since they've torn down the old one, there's an entity that's often seen dressed in a bathrobe It runs up and down the hall. Now, there were times when the patients would actually slip away from their caretaker and take off running. And sometimes, unfortunately, if they weren't caught in time, they would hurt themselves or hurt others. And this may be what we're seeing here. It's very possible that this is a residual energy. And I know this is, again, like the Kirkbride situation. We've talked about residual energy on here Residual energy, for those who aren't familiar, is the theory that sometimes when you see something, it's not an actual ghost. It's an energy or a scene like from a movie replaying itself. So sometimes if you'll hear people about, they'll see like a Civil War reenactment, like Mm -hmm. they'll come across the battlefield and they'll see the troops from both sides fighting each other and all that. And then it just disappears. That would be a residual energy. All those wouldn't be ghosts. Yeah. Or sometimes they'll see a woman walking down the staircase. And every time you see her, it's always the same woman always walking down the staircase. That's probably a residual energy. That energy is stuck there and replaying an event over and over again. Um, that could be the case with this situation. If they keep seeing this woman running up and down and it's the same one, that could be a residual energy. Which 
the difference between that and a, a spirit or a ghost is a lot of times you'll, you'll hear a ghost looked at or referred to as an intelligent haunting, which means it can respond back to you. You can, like the flashlight deal, where you, you'll see investigators say, hey, turn on the flashlight of this and that. A residual energy wouldn't be able to do that. Okay. Because it's not really a ghost that's hearing you and understanding. It's just, it would walk past you and not even realize you're there. Oh, yeah. But with an actual spirit, they should be able to communicate or at least have the ability to. So that's the difference between a residual energy and, say, a ghost. Right. I just want to communicate one time with one. Well, you did that. You well, had, you I, had that thing dancing all on top. Of well, you. I did do that, but just to maybe like hear them talk back. Yeah. To you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's the closest I've ever been to heaven, and uh, oh, an experience like that, and it was totally amazing. So, like we said, some patients would actually get away and possibly hurt somebody. And the most well-known case of this at Central State Hospital is when a violent patient broke free and killed another patient under a grove of trees on the property. Oh, that's that's really terrible, really sad. Workers and visitors have heard cries and groans of the victim coming from that area where the grove of trees were. So what, I mean, and what happens when that, that occurred? Did they take the patient to jail or what happens? Do you know? It's a good question. I don't know. And my guess is they probably didn't because in most cases, that's why they were there to begin with is because they didn't, they wouldn't send them to jail. Hmm. Probably just had to put them on a higher surveillance yeah. Or, in their case, probably locked them up downstairs in the basement or in a dark room on a tunnel. Yeah. Other entities in robes have been seen running across the lawn in their bid to escape. Again, could be residual energies. So you knew that we had to eventually talk about the tunnels under the hospital. There's a pretty cool story that is actually told about this tunnel. It involves a patient by the name of Al. Now, Al lived in one of the, the uh, non-secure wings, we'll say. So he kind of had the ability to come, come and go, go as he mm-hmm. wanted. Al used to go and sit on the steps that led down to the basement and talk to one of the little girls there. Okay. But Al went missing. Oh. Like off the property? Yes. He just, he just went missing. Nobody could find him. A huge search was, search was conducted, and the hospital workers and eventually the police were all involved in the search. Neither the police or the hospital staff could find Al on or off the hospital grounds. Now, everyone involved came to the conclusion that Al must have just made a successful escape. Well, you can imagine the surprise of a nurse when she noticed that there was a female patient, the same little girl. Mm-hmm. She kept going down the steps to the tunnels to still talk to Al. Al wasn't there, but the little girl kept going down to talk to him. Hmm. Upon a search of that area, Al's deceased body was eventually found in the tunnels. Oh, no. What the heck? Now, I'll tell you something interesting. This is maybe the coolest part of the story for me. I did this story. I had it already written. And James Barnes from Tragedy Cinema, who will be at our live event. Mm -hmm. I told him, hey, we're doing a story on Central State. And he said, hey, my grandma used to work there. She was a nurse. Get out of here. And he said, she 
was the nurse who noticed a little girl talking to a spirit or talking to, to a gentleman, and they eventually found him dead. Are you serious? He had no clue that I even covered that part in our story. What in the heck? And his grandmother was the person that I was actually writing about. What a small world. That so, is amazing. I thought that was extremely cool. That is very cool. So, anyways. Another hospital worker heard moans coming from the dirt floor room off of the tunnel, which turned out to have chains and hand restraints on the wall, but this worker was unaware of that until they searched and saw that that's what's going on. So that made sense that he might be hearing moans and groans coming mm-hmm. because this has been one of the rooms where somebody would have been restrained. All right, so let's talk more about the graves. We said that that was recently found. How recent? How about September of 2020? Get out of here. It appeared to be just your basic field with some a chain link fence around it. And it was completely overgrown with grass and weeds and stuff like that. All the tombstones had been removed years ago. No way. There are no burial records. So there are no identities to anyone that's buried there. Is that why they removed the stones? Because, I mean, why would they do that? I don't know. I have no idea. That seems kind of disrespectful. Maybe. Well, it says here they had removed the stones, but we said earlier that they were buried in unmarked graves. So there may have never been any stones. I I don't know. Where did the stones come from? I don't know that there were stones. They just said the stones had been removed, which meant there weren't any stones there. I don't know that there were ever stones there. So who did who found that? Well, I think they were just getting ready to do some maintenance on the property. I don't I don't know how they actually figured out that mm-hmm. there were graves there. A lot of times today, before they do anything to property, they usually do like an ultrasound where they go through and check to see if there's anything underground just in case. And it might have been just a rudimentary um thing that they were doing that just showed it up by coincidence. But Yeah, so I don't actually, I didn't see anything in the story that showed why they looked or how they Mm -hmm. found out that that was the case. So they contacted the people at Ball State. Their archaeologists actually were helping to locate all the graves, and they believe that there are approximately 235 patients buried there. Dang. So we're going to end with this. Back in 2006, Maggie Zoas and her husband, paranormal investigators, They were asked to investigate the hospital for a documentary by filmmaker Dan Hall. So Zoas and her group, the Indiana Paranormal Investigators, they get to the property and they set up a base camp in the admin building. They were in one of the second floor rooms and it was summertime. It was really hot outside. They were trying to figure out how to open the windows. Then all of a sudden, three of them here pull down from the top. Well, Maggie Zoas was curious who said it. So she says, you know, who, who was it in here that knew how to open the windows? Everybody shook their head nobody no. Nobody said no. Nobody knew. But three people heard it, but every, nobody said that they, they had said it. Oh, wow. So it came from everywhere, from nowhere, basically. Um, I was like, you know, we didn't say nothing. I don't know, you know. And the funny thing was... Um, yeah, that spirit probably was like, a breath well, they, of fresh air, maybe. You know? They had a recorder going, mm-hmm. and the recorder didn't pick up the voice. Oh, it didn't pick nothing no, up? No, it didn't pick it up. Okay, now that's creepy. Three people heard it, but it wasn't on the recorder. Yeah, that's creepy. 
Zoas also heard a second voice while investigating at the asylum. We'll talk about the second voice in a minute. They did capture a shadow figure that made it onto the documentary. Cool. They caught an, I love shadow figures. They're <laughs> awesome. They caught an EVP in a tunnel that sounded like a cackling woman. Oh. I think the coolest story, though, for Maggie, as far as her investigation, is that they were in a dining room area, right? Mm-hmm. The recording picked up an EVP that was a young child. This is the second voice. That's what they were going to tell more about. The young child said the name Adam. They said it was really plain. So they thought, well, maybe this is his name or whatever the case is. Almost immediately after, there was an older voice that whispered the name Adam. Maggie was actually pregnant at this time. And when her son was born, they decided to name him Adam. She wasn't sure if the voice was letting her know that this was going to be her son's name. Mm -hmm. Or if it was an idea they got just because of this had happened. But she said it just seemed like the 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 right thing to the do. right thing to do. Oh, that's Adam. nice. So very cool. Anyway, that's our story on Central State Hospital in Indiana. Man, I'm weighing. A lot of stuff going on there. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break from our sponsors, and then uh, we'll be back uh, with some housekeeping. All right, Tracy. So, next live event. August 20th, this thing is probably going to sell out, so only, there's only 60 seats available, mm-hmm. and they're telling me, i got people telling me that's been there, they don't know where they're going to fit 60 people. Oh, really? So, I would say... <laughs> we'll, we'll, We're that, all going to love one that, another where we want that, to or not? <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like that show we did with Graveyard Tales in Nashville oh my where gosh. we were crammed together. We were. It was so fun, though. So, hey, if you like sitting on a plane, this would be the perfect event. <laughs> Um, but no, it's going to be fun because we're going to be there, obviously. Annie Weaves and uh, Brendan Shea will be there from Serial Spirits. Marianne Farley, one of our favorites, will be helping out there and giving mm-hmm. tours. But it's going to be an awesome show. You get a free tour of the place. It's going to be our sixth anniversary show. It's going to be a blast. Yay. It's not very often we get to do locations inside of a place. Mm-hmm. But here's a secret. Don't tell nobody. Just you 20 or 30,000 listening. We were talking to Tina Mattingly from Waverly, and it's possible in the future we might be able to do a Louisville event inside Waverly Hills. So we'll nice. see. We'll see where that comes. But she liked the idea, and uh, they just got to figure out some stuff on their end first. But yeah. that may be something that happens. That would be nice. That, that place. Be... It gives me the creeps every time I go in there, man. I know it don't bug you too much because you've done spent the night and all that stuff. It. You'll know. When you walk in, you'll know it. You'll know. You'll feel it. Definitely. Yeah, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the intentions on that. Uh, also, I wanted to make sure that uh, people know that the cruise is only a couple months away. And that is unbelievable. That is crazy. It's like two months away, and I've been telling myself this whole year, all right, I got to lose weight. I got to lose weight. Guess what? It's two months away. Guess what? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay we are so freaking excited to see everybody we cannot wait to have fun with you guys it's been a long time coming we've been looking forward to it and we just i mean i can't even believe it's almost here yep it's gonna be fun all right 
we don't have we're not we're going to skip over the iTunes reviews and the uh, Patreon because we're recording this a little bit early. We want to make sure everybody gets in, so we'll cover all those next week. Yeah. But um, so leave some reviews, guys. Yeah, leave us some reviews so we can have a bunch to read out. All right, we ready to hear Dan Class and his I interview am about so the Hinsdale excited. House? Yes. I'm, I want to tell people, and I don't remember which episode it is, but uh, just go to Google and type in Hibbley Horror Story Hensdale House, mm-hmm. and it'll come up which episode. Dan doesn't talk a ton about the house as far as the history. I mean, we talk about some of the stuff that's went on and uh, since he's got it and stuff. But if you really want to hear the entire history, and it's an amazing history, it's actually one of my favorite episodes, go back and listen to the Hensdale House episode after you listen to Dan's interview, and I think it'll it'll be a good fit. I'll eventually put that episode out as a, as a um, classic, and I'll put his interview again on the end so that both of them will be together. Very but cool. I think you guys are going to like it. He's a, he's great. And this guy's tied into everybody who's anybody in the film yeah, of the world. That's exciting. So Good he actually him. he produces uh, uh, Death Walker from uh, Nick Groff. I mean, he's the producer of that show. And him and Nick and stuff, tie, you know, do a bunch of stuff together. But I, every time you turn around, he's with one of the more famous paranormal investigators. Whether it be Dustin Perry or, mm-hmm. um, like I said, uh, Mike Couch, who we'll get to see in a yes. couple of weeks. Oh, up I at, know. I'm uh, excited Rose about Museum. that. So, all right, guys. Let's listen to Dan, and then uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hey, guys, I've got Dan Class on the phone, and uh, I guess technically on video, too, so it's not just the phone, but uh, Dan is the owner of the Hinsdale House up in New York. It's one of the more popular haunted, haunted houses that people love to go explore and investigate, and uh, Dan bought this uh, some years back and did some major restoration trying to get it to uh, to where it is today and i know there's probably still a lot more needs to be done which is uh why you still do those investigations dan thanks for coming on thanks for having me it's cool so dan how long have you been a paranormal investigator man it's probably been like 12 13 years now that i've been like doing it you know at least part-time of my of my life you know um i was always interested in it uh but then i just kind of evolved you know as you get more interested in things and wanting to learn more and divulging more time into it uh up to a point where it's full-time you know it's a full-time thing for me so now the Hinsdale house has a fascinating history it's one of those stories that has a little bit of everything from native american burial grounds to you know you name it it's involved on on that property and uh um, and that house from the stories from the people who've lived there and, and previous residents. Tell everybody how you got involved with the Hinsdale house and how you eventually was able to take ownership. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a weird story, but I mean, just, just as any paranormal team, any paranormal enthusiast out there, you go out exploring uh, paranormal locations. And I have formed a team in Buffalo called the greater Western New York paranormal society I was the responsible one on the team normally, and I would book all of our investigations and then invite team, the team members along, and we put a game plan together and kind of have at it, you know. Um, but for this particular investigation, the co-founder of my group, Cameron, booked it, and he told us all, he's like, you know, I'll brief you guys all when you get to the location. Don't, don't research anything. Well, I have it all. I have it all ready for you, you know. <laughs> and uh, we went there. I, I remember he had booked it in the middle of December. I had a two-wheel drive, a front-wheel drive car, and this thing's up in the mountains, you know, down in the southern tier of New York State, and we're in the middle of winter, it's snowing out, and I didn't even <laughs> think I was going to get it up the hill, you know, and uh, 
it just didn't feel right. <laughs> just just driving up that hill, and and I did make it to the house, and I didn't think I was going to be able to get out of there because you're going down these dirt roads and stuff. But um, you know, I I we got in the house and we sat down in the living room, and uh, he had us sit sit there, and you know there was only electricity in the living room and uh, space heaters. That was it for the whole house. No no electricity, so it was it was really bad there was like black mold in the kitchen it was just not in really good shape there was flies buzzing around and it was like below zero <laughs> um but he had us <laughs> watch the, the episode of a haunting uh, called the dark forest and it's based on the family that lived there in the 1970s the dandy family and uh the problems and the issues that they were having with poltergeist-like activity and uh the things that they were seeing feeling and hearing there um, and then uh, up to a point where they had a failed structural exorcism of the location. And uh, I remember looking at, at Cameron and I said, you know, I said a few foul words. Uh, are we in, sitting in this house? <laughs> are we sitting in the house that this is based on? And he's like, yeah, isn't that cool? I'm like, oh, that's kind of something you want to mentally prepare yourself for, you know, and, uh, you know, got, got it together and, uh, you know, we investigated, you know, and, and it was, wasn't so scary. You know, it was scary at the beginning because you think failed exorcism, oh boy, you know, like, but it was, it was a good night uh, as far as evidence retrieval, you know, like things that paranormal investigators go out and say, oh, that's cool. We got something cool, something unexplained happened. And it seemed like the energies of the location really wanted to communicate with us, uh, but they didn't have a voice. There was no way for them to verbally communicate. Um, so if it, it was very interesting to me, the story of the location, um, what had happened to the family in the 1970s. And I en ended up going there a few more times. Uh, we filmed a, a YouTube series there, two-part series, which is, you know, viewed hundreds of thousands of times. And, and it, was, it was really cool as far as when I started uh, researching um, other families that may have lived there, because I said, it can't just have happened to this one family. Um, and, and the house was in foreclosure uh, it, it, down the road about a year or so after we started that initial investigation. So uh, the house was in foreclosure and, um, you know, the, the bank wouldn't do a mortgage on it because of the disrepair. You know, it had black mold, uh, needed siding, needed a new roof, it had 500,000 honeybees living in the wall and needed everything. Windows, you, you name it, it needed it. Uh, some foundation work. Uh, so, you know, I had called them and expressed my interest in trying to save the location and they could feel my passion for it. And they basically it had to come, it came down to, it had to be a cash deal, you know, and uh, I had just closed on a, a mortgage or just closed on a new house for my family uh, where I live and cash was a little tight at that point. Um, but everything, everything fell into place uh, for me, you know, just, it, it seemed like it was meant to be, I still was kind of weary about it. I remember telling my wife about it and, uh, you know, trying to sell that to your wife, you know, uh, oh, honey, uh, income property <laughs> down in the Southern tier, you know, oh, tell me about it. Uh, well, has no heating, has no electrical, needs a new roof, new siding, black mold and 500,000 honeybees. Oh, other than that, it's, she, other than that, it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, um, she, uh, she entrusted in, in my belief systems and, and what I thought I could do with the location and, and how I could help it. And a lot, you know, we just talked it through and, and, and everything fell into place. And, and up to the day that I went to go sign, sign the sign for it, I, I even drove there and I stood in front of it and I said, what the heck am I doing? You know, this is, this is a big, 
this is a big chance I'm taking here because I could go sign this and tomorrow the roof could cave in, you know, like <laughs> there's so much work that needed to be done. And it was a, a very overwhelming, but you know, I did it. And, uh, the paranormal community really stepped up to the plate, you know, it was helping out with the location and it was baby steps at the beginning. It was patchwork. It was, um, just, you know, whatever could be donated, we threw on there to try to stabilize it and, and get it fixed. And, and a lot of people came through. I mean, we have, we've had like a day of caring where people came, scraped, painted, um, did whatever we could do to try to, to make it look, uh, you know, prolong the, the, prolong it from decaying anymore. And uh, we uh, had like 63 people show up with paint, lawn mowers, weed whackers. Uh, and it was, it was just amazing. And I, I always look at the, the Hinsdale house as a positive story because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, things that happen in the paranormal field. Like I didn't feel it until I, until I started branching out of New York state because we're tight. We're tight in Western New York. Like all the people that are involved with the paranormal help each other out. There's really no, like, um, I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge. We all work together, you know, like, and, and, uh, we're, we're, we're a team here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really cool feeling to know that everybody that I've ever met in Western New York that's involved with paranormal or psychic type stuff, uh, is, is there's no animosity between anybody and we all work together, you know? So it was, uh, it was cool to be able to have that story of positiveness, you know, from an otherwise negative story of this house, you know, and, um, you know, and I just been working on it ever since. And it's been a labor of love, tons of amazing volunteers that have helped out. Um, and, and we're getting there, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's in a lot better place than it was 2015 when I purchased it and uh, we continue to make improvements, you know, every year. So one thing after another. It's like you said, when you stood out in front of it, when you first got it and said it was kind of overwhelming, what, how do you decide what is the number one thing to do first? You know, when you've got so many things that need to be done, what was the first thing you did? Was it a new roof? Yeah. Yeah. The roof had to be done first. We had to stop the leaking and, you know, the black mold, you know, obviously had to be second, but uh, yeah, the roof had to be done first, which is one of the most expensive things to do a complete was, tear off. You know, I was going to say that's an, and it's a big house, you know, as far as roof wise. So it does seem like that would be very expensive. Bad. I mean, we got it, we got it done for like a quarter of what the cost would have been to just have a, a company come out and do it because some of the volunteers were roofers and uh, they volunteered their time. Uh, and that's the most expensive thing is the labor, you know? So um the cost of getting the shingles and the cost of getting all that type of stuff was uh, like a quarter, basically a quarter of what it would have cost to do the whole roof. So it's uh, it, that was amazing to be able to get that done with just a relief. It was like the big, the biggest weight lifted off my shoulder because I knew that that was the, the biggest thing that needed to be done. Um, obviously, black mold, people's health are it's important. Honeybees, you know, stuff in the in the floorboards and. Um, you know, you have to take all that into consideration. I mean, at the first year I had to let people know, you know, there, there's honeybees, there's uh, you know, we, we just got rid of black mold. Um, this is, you're taking your health into consideration and people still wanted to come, um, and investigate and, and donate to the cause. So, uh, it was a big undertaking, you know, but it's, it's in, it's in really good, really good shape now, as far as the structure goes. 
So you've basically opened it up for paranormal investigations and stuff to raise money to help further the refurbishment of the house, correct? Correct. Yep. That was my whole idea about refurbishing the property and the house and investing into the folklore and the stories of the location and uh, really making it a, a, a number one place on people's list to destination as far as they want to go as paranormal goes for investigations, you know, and, and getting out there and reaching out to people and talking about it and, and uh, allowing people to know that they can come there, you know, it's like a, but for paranormal investigators, it's like a paranormal vacation, you know, I'll market the crap out of it, you know, and throw Niagara Falls in there and, and other things, you know, like, oh, my wife doesn't want to go. Does she like Niagara Falls? Does she like casinos? You know, does she like, <laughs> there's, you know, who doesn't, who doesn't like that type of stuff, you know, so it's, you know, kill two birds with one stone. And, and, uh, that's my background marketing. And, uh, I did it, did it with bands. I was a tour manager for the band live in the nineties. And, uh, it's all Dude. about, it's all about, uh, marketing and, and just getting, getting the word out there and talking to people. And, and that's just kind of been my goal since I've gotten it and just working and fixing the place up. Dude, you'll find this kind of a coincidence because I, I I told you the other day I had an interview with uh, Art Alexakis from Everclear, uh, which he's one of my musical idols. But I actually told Art when I had him on the phone that I have three musical songwriting idols, him, John Lennon and Ed Kowalczyk from Live. Yeah. Live is uh, Live is in my top five favorite bands. And uh, I had a chance to to meet Ed in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, probably nine years ago when he when his uh, uh, solo album had just came out, the uh, mm-hmm. second one that he did. And man, I'm telling you, it was like the biggest. I, I, and it sounds stupid to some people, but I've actually got that ticket with his autograph in my wallet. That's one of the few things. Oh. I'm not a big autograph guy or any other guy, but that's the one little memento that I keep in my wallet at all times. So I had no idea that you had a connection to that band. And yeah, they're, that's amazing. Uh, they're, they're probably one of my top five too. That I actually, I like Tool too. I like a lot of band, Pennsylvania bands, but I just, one of the highlights of that, you know, I mean, it, it's a tough life being on the road uh, doing that type of stuff, but I remember being at Hershey Park, which is their, you know, basically their home stadium. And just the whole place was sold out, the floor, the ground, the floor, and just being behind the stage, just looking at that crowd was just unbelievable, you know. And there was a, a local band called the Jelly Bricks that were opening up for them that I was good friends with. And it was uh, just amazing, you know, just to see that, just to be behind the stage and see that big of a crowd just unbelievable you feel you you just feel the energy especially being at a home at a hometown uh show you know it was just really cool another another local connection that we've got uh we got friends of ours that run a a local sports radio show but it's actually a nationwide it's one of the biggest and they've been taking a tour of pennsylvania just because they drew it out of a hat and uh they actually were in york and i had brought brought it up to them that hey that's where the band lies from and they actually went to the uh a Joan Jett Motley Crue poison concert in Hershey stadium, uh, night before last. So kind of funny, all this just comes in within a couple of days. I mean, it's, you wouldn't think that they've been in, that many times between a Kentucky and a Buffalo guy, but we found three of them in a couple of yeah. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so you're up there uh, by, uh, Nick and Tessa Groff. You guys do some things together, don't you? Some events. Yeah, I actually, um, I was the one that introduced those two crazy, okay. right? 
Um, I figured it would be easier to to introduce Nick to the love of his life and uh, get him to move here. So because we worked together, we were working together before they met. And uh, I'm the production manager for his show Death Walker. And, um, you know, it's 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 just it's amazing how things just work out when when they're when they lay down and they're, they things happen the way that they're supposed to it just feels right. And uh, now we have the benefit of being close, close to each other um, when we need stuff. You know, we can work on the show here. You know, he, he, it's easy access as far as if I have questions or if I need something done for an event that we're doing. We're doing a big, big event on August 20th. Uh, one of my, the shows that I'm uh, directing is going to be going on first. Then we're actually going to be doing the U.S. premiere of uh, Death Walker and, and making an announcement there uh, in my hometown in North Tonawanda, New York at the Riviera Theater. Um, it's going to be like a red carpet event. It's going to be really cool. Nice. You know, I had Tessa on uh, probably a month ago, and she told the story. She's, but, but I did. I don't think she mentioned you by name. She said I was on a podcast, and he said, "Is it okay if I bring this guy on?" And she said she really didn't know much about Nick. She'd never seen Ghost Adventures. She'd never seen uh, Paranormal Lockdown or any of that. And she yeah. said, "But they hit it off, and it just ended up working." But I didn't realize it was you that she was talking about. Yeah, it's funny because it was uh, she had asked me to be on her podcast, and then um, I I brought Nick on, and uh, it was it the pot there was some something was happening where it wasn't it was disconnecting, and Nick kind of sounded like uh couldn't really hear him that well, and I and I know Tessa she's she's got like a heart of gold, and and uh, she felt bad you know because uh, the the podcast didn't something was happening and it just didn't didn't work the way it was supposed to when we had him on and. I know that got them talking and I think it, it just happened meant to meant to be it was like the universe coming down and even the lightning bolt on that podcast it got them got them talking and then uh Nick's not even nor, normally when something like that happens he's not one to like oh let me do it again you know let me jump on and do a podcast again you know uh, but after they got talking he uh he's like I remember him saying well, what do you think about Tessa because I've known Tessa for a long you know for a long time because i produce like psychic fairs in Western New York. And she's always been a big part of those for me. So I always knew how she, you know, what she stood for. And, and she was just a very good, like amazing, independent, uh, pr- good self-promoter, you know, so, you know, self-motivated type of person. Those are the type of people you like to be around. And um, it was, uh, I, I remember Nick, he called me and goes, so what, what do you think about Tessa? I'm like, wait a second. I go, what, what's going on? Here? <laughs> And uh, I'm like, really? You know, I, I, I was excited. You know, it was it was kind of cool. But you, you just don't know. You don't know where things are going to where the pieces are going to fall. And and they fell. And, and I think things just fall in the way that they're supposed to when things are right. You know, and I can't believe, you know, all these years later, here they are married. And uh, man, I, I was involved with the proposal, too. It was uh, I got to be the. Uh, the limo driver for the night as I dropped them off at Shay's Performing Arts Center and we had I had my friend who was a photographer in there and we hired a saxophone player and man he he we he did it up for her with that proposal and, nice uh, the big billboard on Main Street in Buffalo lit up you know it was it was, it was really nice hey, look at look at Nick being a romantic oh he dude he's all heart he really is when it comes to that he's he's a big glover you know you you could tell, like I said, I I've had the 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 privilege of having him on the show, and I told Tessa this. I think when we were on, you know, 
we were done with the podcast, which I know Nick doesn't do a lot of podcasts other than his own. He doesn't, you know, it's not really his thing. And I got lucky to have uh, Lee Kirkland as a good friend that kind of, uh, kind of guilted him into it, I think. But when it was all said and done, you know, we were done recording. And I think we talked for another half hour or 45 minutes, just about in general, you know, uh, life. And I mean, you can just tell that he's, he's a good father. He's, he's a good guy when it comes to stuff. I mean, I know he was talking about, uh, not being able to make an event because it was scheduled on the weekend of his daughter's birthday and he wouldn't miss her oh, birthday. Yeah. There's a, and there's a lot of people that would be like, oh, I'll make it up. We'll celebrate your birthday another day. But he was like, Hey, I can't, I won't do an event. It's on my kid's birthday. I just, that's just, yeah, you know, he, says a lot was, about a person. He was somebody that, that motivated me in a way too, because I had, I had been through a divorce and I had full custody of my kids and uh, you know, there was times that I contemplated not doing it, but then I saw Nick and I said, he's a good, you know, just like you said, he's a good father. He cares, he cares about his kids, his family, family first. Right. And that, and that's kind of like been my motto. Like I, anything can come and go, but at the end of the day, you can't replace those, those moments or those times that you have with your family. And that's the most important thing. Like I will, if I get invited to an event or, or, or something like that, and I have a camping trip planned or we're going on, you know, that that's priority for me. My family's number one. That's what makes me tick. That's what makes me work super hard. And, and I want to make sure that they're ha- everybody's happy first and foremost, before uh, anything happens in the paranormal. And it's, that's, you know, that's, like I said, that's when I saw, when I saw Nick and I saw that if he can do it and he's on a successful show, ghost adventures and doing paranormal lockdown and he's doing all this and, and his family's his passion, you know, and that's right here, you know, just hit, hits me in my heart. If that, if that can be done, then I can do it too, you know, and, and uh, just motivate you and, and we motivate each other. Nice. So let's jump back to the Hinsdale house for a second. Where does it stand today? As far as uh, uh, how much more work needs to be done? Are you 75% done, 50% done, 80% done? What do you think? Well, with the plans that I have, uh, we're, we're about 50% done. Uh, the house itself is stabilized. Um, we did get the shed done. We, we started putting in the, the um, scanning tour. Uh, so we have that into the house. We have to install Wi-Fi extenders to the outside of the house and install another leg of the tour, which is basically giving people information at the, uh, on their phone, you know, so they can click a scan code and all this information is going to pop up of what happened in that room or uh, evidence that paranormal teams picked up or, um, you know, an interview with Clara Dandy or Flo Misnick or somebody that's affiliated with the house from the past, even the priest that performed the exorcism. You know, we have all this footage and that's always been like my biggest thing with the paranormal is getting people the information. So they, they have a better uh, investigation. So this is all at their fingertips now inside the house and outside the house is coming. And we're also going to be in the process of saving to build a museum and a base camp area for like, it's like a cab. It'll be just basically a cabin with closed circuit televisions uh, from the house camera. So they can watch those while their team's in the house. The rest of the team can hang out in the cabin, uh, less noise contamination. And uh, I don't know. I just think, uh, you know, when I, when I come up with all these ideas, I think of what would I want as a paranormal investigator if I came here to make this better, you know? And, and those are kind of like the things that we've been doing. Like uh, when you have to go behind the house and climb up the hill, you know, much easier if there were steps. So we may, we put steps in, you know, and, and um, you know, uh, getting EVPs out by the pond, it would be easier if we had a deck, you know, so put a deck in and, and just, just like, you know, 
just making it so it's it's beneficial to uh, and for teams that are coming there to investigate and making it as uh, the process as easy as possible for them. Um, so we still have we still have the the museum aspect of it, the cabin to build. So we still have two structures that we want to build on the property. So that's just kind of what we've been saving for. Is the house open for tours or is it strictly paranormal investigations? Um, it's open for any 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 curiosity levels of, of of where you are in the paranormal. We will cater to you as far as getting you there to uh, investigate or check it out. It's like a just a daytime tour. You're scared to come at night. We'll do those. You know, if you want to spend the night, but you're not a paranormal investigator, we'll we'll stay with you. You know, so we have like all different uh, levels of things that we can offer for people that want to really dive in. You know, or check it out, or just be part of it. You know. Now, I'm trying to go off memory here, but uh, there was some um, uh, Native American burial sites, I believe, found on ground. Uh, am I correct in saying that you actually discovered that information or am I wrong on that? No, it was uh, it was told, uh, you know, as far as the history goes, but it's not it was original to the pro property, the original property lines. But it sits on my neighbor's property now, the four burial mounds. Uh, just the research that we did on them, though, because the, the natives that are there now aren't mound builders. So we had to actually try to dig back into time to find uh, what, what the last mound builders were in that region um, to figure out what, who they might be or what tribe they might have been from, you know. Um, we found uh, arrowheads and we found uh, cool relics from Native Americans buried when we were doing the septic system and um, just really, you can really know, you really know that there's an element even dating, you know, with some of the stories that are told people hear drumming, flute playing, and there's actually been uh, apparitions captured of a Native American woman and uh, what looks like a chief, but he's got feathers on his head in the driveway, which is a really cool picture that was captured. Um, so there's definitely Native American element to the location, which why people will say that sometimes the outside of the house is busier than the inside. Give me a give me an example or two of some experiences that you've had inside the house since you took ownership. I, yeah, there, there's one that just stands out. Uh, I was it was a friend of mine, Kaylee. Uh, she's a, a paranormal novice, if you will. She had never done any investigating, and uh, she just really wanted to experience something. So it was an off night, and uh, I said, "Well, let's go down, and uh, we'll." chill and I'll bring some equipment down and um it was quiet it was it was one of those types of nights where just nothing you know nothing was happening I don't know if it was because we were just having a good conversation or what but it was probably like two three in the morning and uh I went and laid down on the couch in the living room and she went on the other couch and turned the lights off the only light that was on in the in the living room was the night light on the wall and in all the years I've been doing this you know I'm not one to say like oh I think I was touched you know <laughs> I can honestly say, like, when I curled over on that couch, I felt something on the back of my neck. Like, I felt like something just just gently touched the back of my neck. And I was like, what is going, you know, what was that? And I just remember slowly turning over, and the light on the wall was blacked out, and then it turned back on, and I kind of cleared my eyes. And this shadow figure was going in front of the light. It was just, like, gliding in front of the light. And it blocked the light out and then went and passed it. And it, it did it a couple times. And I, I remember kicking over on the couch. I'm like, Kaylee, you know, and I, she 
she turned over and she's like, Oh my God, do you see that? I'm like, okay, I'm not seeing things, you know, like I just second guess. <laughs> so she's saying what I'm saying. And I remember her jumping over on the couch and uh, it, it, it was, it definitely had some type of mass to it because it's blocking out light and it's going in front of us. And then it dissipated into where our bedroom used to be off the, off the living room. And I, I've captured a shadow picture on my cameras there. I, you know, other teams have captured it. I've never seen it live like that um, at the house until that, that night. And it was, uh, it was a quite, quite an experience. Cause it's like one of those, you take a deep breath and you're like, Oh my God, Oh my God. You know, you don't know what to expect when something like that happens, you know, and it definitely made its presence known to what that, that night. And it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 So Dan, I appreciate you taking the time to come on with us. Tell everybody how they can uh, keep up with how they can get a tour and investigation of the Hinsdale house and everything else you got going on from uh, maybe you can talk about death Walker. How would they find out everything that's all Dan class right now? The easiest way is, is uh, my website, danielclass.com. Uh, it's Daniel and the last name's K L A E S.com. Um, there's, if there's a drop down box, it basically has links to everything that I do. Uh, if I'm going to be at an event, uh, if I'm doing a public investigation, uh, this right down to death Walker, uh, the television show. So, um, you know, just check out my website. If you're interested in, in touring or coming to investigate the location, I'm not a hard person to get a hold of, you know, I answer everybody, uh, when I get a message. So you know, send it anyway, Google, Facebook, Twitter, however you want to do it. And I'll, I'll get back with you and we'll get something set up. All right, brother. I appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to seeing you in an event soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Tracy, that wraps it up for us this week. We hope you guys enjoyed and we hope you had fun at the live event. If you came out, it was a packed house. Yeah, that's so great. I'm just assuming because I've recording this before that <laughs> but, I'm, but i know how many people are supposed to be there and, and we, we only had 50 tickets available and i think it's i think it's really close to being a sellout right so. well i'm sure it's going to be a blast we always have a good time meeting everybody and um so i guess if we don't see you there hopefully we'll see you at the west virginia show yep also only 50 or 60 tickets yeah, available exactly. for that one well some of those have already been sold so True. yeah come on out it'd be a blast yeah, you guys come on out, and I hope you guys have a blessed week. We love y'all.